One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college, or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. This is MPB News. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Monday, April 19th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine still on pause, health officials examine vaccination rates and the hesitancy factor. Then, from the Gulf States newsroom, how partnerships with community health centers are reaching rural residents in the region. Plus, in part four of Your Vote, Your Voice, we explore how those with felony convictions lose access to the ballot. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. The vaccination in Mississippi continues despite an unexpected bump in the road. Last week, the state put a pause on the Johnson & Johnson vaccine in accordance to CDC guidelines after a small number of rare blood clots were attributed to the shot. State Health Officer Dr. Thomas Dobbs in a roundtable with leaders of the Mississippi Medical Association called the decision wise. I think CDC and FDA did the wise thing to say, let's do a pause on Johnson Johnson, even though it's exceedingly rare, you know, less than one in a million that they've identified so far. So important to keep that in context. You know, is it a bad, difficult disease, illness for the people who get it? Absolutely. But the likelihood it's very low. I think that what CDC and FDA did was was wise on multiple fronts. Um, I, I think you know we have we have great vaccines with Pfizer and Moderna that are available, so we have options. You know, if we didn't have those options, I think the conversation might be more difficult. Um, but also, I think it really it really demonstrates the seriousness to safety that they have. That with disease that has killed over five hundred thousand Americans. That if you look at if people in Mississippi aged over 65 are diagnosed with COVID, one in 10 deaths. People between the ages of 15 and 64 diagnosed with COVID, 2% deaths compared to one in a million. I think it speaks to the magnitude of their safety focus to making sure that Americans get the best vaccine available, but also demonstrate that they're really watching out for any sort of adverse events. 
Health officials say the information regarding the J&J vaccine is prompting other questions about adverse effects. State epidemiologist Dr. Paul Byers says reporting and monitoring is the key to identifying potential risks like those associated with the Johnson & Johnson shot. You know, it's, it's hard to tie those directly to a vaccine. Certainly we have a number of reports that have been entered into the vaccine adverse events reporting system. But remember that a report into that system doesn't mean that the vaccine it does causes. not mean that it's an, a direct association or identify a causal link. It's a system that's used to monitor the occurrence of those potential adverse events, especially to look for anything if there's well, if there's potentially repetitive well, sort a, of occurrence. A fair question be: Has there been anything in the their system nationally uh, of the hundreds of millions of doses? of the Pfizer and Moderna that say there is some trend towards some terrible catastrophic side effects? No, apart from the the limited sort of allergic reactions and, and the handful of cases of anaphylaxis that have occurred now. The pause raised two immediate questions. How will distribution be affected and will hesitancy in all vaccines grow? Dr. Dobbs says some logistical adjustments are being made to compensate for the temporary sidelining of the J&J shot, but doesn't think long-term goals will be affected. We're having to make some logistical adjustments because, you know, a lot of our sort of community events depended on that as an option. Mm -hmm. Although, really, we have always, um, uh, by and large, tried to give people an option of J&J or Moderna or Pfizer, understanding there's some difference between them. And so like when we did one for the state employees, we have both and we, we offered them. And actually, when we, we, when we told them about the two vaccines and let them choose, two thirds of them chose uh, Moderna. No, or I can't remember who was, it was, I think it was Moderna. Moderna, it was Moderna. And a third chose Johnson Johnson. So, um, but yeah, it's gonna cause logistic issues, but. You know, we're so fortunate to have a good supply of Pfizer and Moderna. I mean, that's the, that's that's huge. I mean, even with the the, the doses that we've we've sent out to, to providers that we've asked them to pause the administration on, it's it's still um, a, a minority of the total number of vaccines that we've received for Pfizer and Moderna, and we still have plenty of those. Health officials say vaccine hesitancy may not be as big an issue in the state as previously thought. A recent survey conducted by the Mississippi Department of Health shows a growing number of Mississippians want to receive a coronavirus vaccination. Dr. Dobbs says preliminary results found the state has seen rapid growth in vaccine trust since December. And we've had some people that were worried who got the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Um, and there may be some people who... who um, are kind of entrenched in the no camp who maybe are a little bit more entrenched, but um, I think the people who want it, want it. I, I will say, I still think, um, and, and Dr. Fries, I don't know if you've seen it yet, but, but um, Victor can give me some preliminary results on his uh, trust survey, the most recent one. More people want to get vaccinated today by a significant number than wanted to back in December. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Yeah. And so, and it looks like 73% of Mississippians are a yes on vaccine. We just uh, need to get all of them. That's 70, we're over 70% there. Yeah. And, and then and we've got another, only 10% are a no. We've got some people in between. So there's some, there's some operational room in there where we go. And I think it's, it's going to be this sort of ground campaign, almost, you know, door to door, making sure we give everybody the opportunity to get a vaccine.
As vaccination efforts continue, health leaders are also monitoring a growing number of breakthrough cases. Dr. Byers says the department is now monitoring for such cases so more can be learned about them. Really want to think about what a vaccine breakthrough case is. It's not those individuals who become infected between the first dose and the second dose. It's individuals who, after they have been fully vaccinated and they're beyond that two weeks, so they are really considered fully vaccinated, that they have a positive test, that potentially they're a vaccine breakthrough case. And so, you know, one of the things that we're doing is is looking at those reports, um, trying to determine if they truly are a vaccine breakthrough case, and additionally trying to obtain a sample of that uh, positive result, especially if it's a a molecular test, to be able to allow us to do some some sequencing. But, you know, when I last looked at the data, we were at, at 78 cases. And you think about that, um, and we were just talking about that, we've, we've got uh, more than 600,000 people in Mississippi right now fully vaccinated. And we've identified, you know, a, about 80 cases of vaccine breakthrough. So it's still exceedingly small. I think it still demonstrates that the, that the vaccine is highly effective. More than 900,000 people in Mississippi have gotten at least one coronavirus vaccine, which is around 30 percent of the state's total population. Coming up from the Gulf States newsroom, how partnerships with community health centers are reaching rural residents in the region. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. This is Mississippi Edition. I'm Karen Brown. About two in five Americans live in rural areas across Louisiana, Mississippi, and Alabama. Many of these residents are people of color, low income, and uninsured, communities hit hard by the COVID-19 pandemic. The Biden administration has given billions in funding to community health centers in its mission to get vaccines to those populations. But for much of the rollout, these providers were underutilized. From the Gulf States newsroom, Shalina Chatlani reports. In rural Claiborne Parish, Louisiana, Marie Gray spent a month on a waiting list for the COVID-19 vaccine. The 87-year-old retired teacher signed up at a local grocery store and never got a call back. But one day, a former student gave her a ring. She called and asked me if I had had the vaccine. And I told her, no, she said, I'm signing you up now. Her student works at the David Rain Community Health Center, one of around 1,400 federally funded centers across the country. They serve one in five people in rural areas, primarily the uninsured and communities of color. In February, Gray and her friends all got appointments and made the 20-mile drive to the community health center. It was fun because the reception is so nice. In rural areas across Louisiana, it's more likely for residents to have to go out of their way to travel to vaccine appointments. An NPR analysis of data from Louisiana's health department shows that between January and April, vaccination sites in rural areas received fewer shipments than ones in urban areas. 
urban parishes received enough supply to fully vaccinate 34% of their population, while rural parishes have gotten enough to fully vaccinate 20%. But Kim Hood, Assistant Secretary for Louisiana's Department of Health, says that data might not paint a complete picture because vaccine allocation is complicated. It would be wonderful if we lived in a world where all data was real-time in the truest sense of the word. The department declined to provide additional data to clarify where vaccine doses end up. Hood says equity has always been the goal across the state, but there are challenges. For example, in rural areas, not all providers can meet vaccine refrigeration requirements. Obviously, the department has got work to do. We want to make vaccine available in as many places as possible. Vaccine supply increased for all Louisiana providers, including health centers, at the beginning of March. But the urban-rural divide in health care is not a new problem. COVID has just shown a spotlight on underlying lack of access for people in rural communities. That's William Curry, a rural health expert at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. He says in Alabama, rural providers have been among the last to get the vaccine. Officials at the Alabama Department of Health rejected several requests for data, but said they are focused on an equitable response. In Mississippi, the vaccine rollout, and really the entire pandemic response, has gotten political. Democratic Congressman Benny Thompson, who represents some of the most low-income and rural parts of the state, says many areas he serves have asked for large-scale vaccination sites. But that is a decision that has to go through the governor's office. And the majority of people don't have any confidence that the governor is interested in providing those kinds of services in a minority community. The governor's office in Mississippi declined an interview request, but touted the state's high vaccination rate for black residents. The Gulf States newsroom requested vaccine allocation data from the state's health department to back this up, but it came with a hefty price tag. A spokesperson from the state's health department says they are committed to providing vaccines to rural areas. Thompson says he knows a lot of people in rural areas still don't have that same level of access. If the governor's office working through the health department don't have facilities set up in communities where those individuals live, there's a great probability that we'll miss them. Thank God for the community health centers. The nation's very first community health center, Delta Health Center, serves 16,000 people across the Mississippi Delta each year. John Fairman is the CEO. Many states would be much further ahead had they utilized community health centers from the very beginning. In the beginning of the vaccine rollout, Delta Health only got a few hundred doses a week. Since supply increased, it's managed to vaccinate around 5,000 people. The majority have been black. In early April, Mississippi health officials announced they wanted to create more partnerships with health centers, and many states are shifting to a more targeted approach in rural areas to meet people where they are, putting up mobile clinics and doing church events. Fairman says his center has been doing health care that way since the 1960s. Use the infrastructure that's already in place, that has community trust. A Biden administration program has already enrolled over 500 community health centers to receive direct shipments of vaccine and more funding. In less than a month, those centers administered over a million doses. For the Gulf States Newsroom, I'm Shalina Chutlani. 
The Gulf States Newsroom is a regional collaboration between public media stations in Louisiana, Alabama, and Mississippi. Tomorrow, we'll hear how Mississippi's Delta Health Center became a national model. Coming up in part four of Your Vote, Your Voice, we explore how those with felony convictions lose access to the ballot. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, you get information about foods you should eat to stay in good health and tips on how to stay active. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, host of Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit and Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Listen to the show every Monday at 11 or subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy with your preferred podcasting app. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. In 37 states, those who lose their right to vote due to felony convictions have those rights restored immediately upon release. That, however, is not the case in the Magnolia State, where it's estimated that 10 percent of potential voters have lost access to the ballot. In Mississippi, a conviction of any of 23 felonies results in permanent disenfranchisement. Nishambi Landright is the executive director of One Voice Mississippi. She tells our Ashley Norwood the laws stipulating disenfranchisement have expanded since the Constitution was written, creating voting barriers for many Mississippians. Oh, my goodness. Disenfranchisement is a really big problem here in Mississippi. Um, We have about 23 crimes, 23 felony crimes right now that take voting rights away. In our original um, Constitution, there were only 10 crimes listed. One of those crimes that was listed was theft. And so um, our attorney general um, back in the early 2000s and um, the then secretary of state, decided to expand the definition of theft, which then opened it up to about 11 more crimes that included kind of, I guess, modern day crimes like shoplifting and um, felony bad check writing, auto burglary, a lot of these different um, crimes um, that sound like theft. And those crimes ended up excluding hundreds of thousands of Mississippians uh, from uh, the voting roll We have since also added voter fraud and another um, expansion of theft, which is is something like um, burglary from a lease or rental agreement. And so that took the number of crimes up to 23 now. There's no notification to individuals that they've been um, excluded off of the voting rolls. Most people think that if they are convicted of any felony that they can't vote. So a large part of our education is about going out and telling individuals, you can vote. You know, if, if you haven't been convicted of one of these crimes, you do have the right to vote. And if you have been convicted of one of these crimes, there is a process to get your voting rights restored, um, either through the legislature or a governor's pardon. How often does that happen? Does it happen often in Mississippi? It's very, the governor's pardon um, hasn't happened I don't think in the past five years. And the legislature um, every year, um, our black caucus members, as well as other members of the legislature, always have um, a number of their constituents that are trying to get their voting rights restored. Um, However, if on the average about 50 people are recommended for this process, 
only maybe 5 to 10% actually make it through, unfortunately. So then do they have the opportunity to go back and try again, or is it a one-time thing? Okay. Yes, you can um, try again. We have a number of individuals who applied this time um, for the third time um, to get their voting rights restored, and unfortunately they didn't make it through this process either. I know uh, this this has been an issue in other states, and I'm not sure if it's been an issue in Mississippi, but I want to ask, so people who may have the same name or similar names of those who have been disenfranchised, are we hearing of, of uh, situations where they're being purged off of the voter rolls? That does happen. That does happen. And I've heard of it um, not so much with the issue of people um, with felonies being removed, but of, of folks that, that have passed away um, being removed from um, the voter roll. Uh, we heard from someone in um, Hazelhurst, Mississippi, during the last November election um, whose grandfather had just passed away and he had the same name and he went to vote and his name was off of the uh, voting roll. So I know I've heard about it in that situation. And with um, individuals trying to get their voting rights restored, you know, we know we've heard of all of these cases of identity theft and mistaken identity with very common names. We've had individuals who have gone before the legislature to get their voting rights restored. And, you know, you have to say that for the past five years, you haven't been convicted of any other crime. And if someone with a similar name pops up in the um, background check, then we have heard of people who have been excluded for mistaken identity. So it, it definitely happens, and it's definitely a big problem. Nishambi Lambright, Executive Director with One Voice Mississippi. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us about this very important topic. Thank you for having me. The act of voting is one of the most fundamental ways a resident can ha help steer the direction of his or her community. But for felons reentering their communities, permanent disenfranchisement makes it difficult to engage in that most basic of democratic ways. Pauline Rogers is a former inmate and the founder of REACH, Reaching an Education for Community Hope Foundation. She says without access to the ballot, released felons cannot invest in the communities they're reentering. I understand the situation and the barriers and the problems firsthand because I live inside the prison. So I have the lived experience and the lived experience is what gives me the insight with knowing what to help with and how best from my experience, how we ought to be helping. What are some of the biggest challenges faced by um, those paroled now to reenter society? Housing, employment, transportation, uh, jobs, tons of barriers, voting, uh, everything that a, a citizen would have in this country, they face those barriers once they get out. It's perpetual punishment. And of course, let's focus on voting. Who can't vote even though they've served their time and are released? Uh, Mississippi criminal laws are designed to punish perpetually uh, with past people with past felony convictions. And, and a person's punishment doesn't end when they leave prison or finish their probation and parole. In Mississippi, it lasts a lifetime. Is there legislation or is there an effort to always 
introduce legislation that might reduce some of these felonies that prohibit people from voting? Yes, there are organizations in the state that constantly work on this issue. Southern Poverty Law Center, ACLU, Forward.us, Empower Mississippi, Clergy for Prison Reform, which I'm a, a, a member of. You have a lot of organizations here in the state, and that's not an exhaustive list. That just name a few of them that are daily working on this issue. Uh, Vote.org, One Voice. You have organizations like that that are constantly working on these issues. And you would think with that kind of power behind yeah. this issue that it would not only address the disparities in voting, but make a difference. Is there any um, hope that that this kind of work is going to make a difference in the foreseeable future? Look, yes, there is hope. That's the one thing that we always can hold on to, and that is hope. Christ, which I'm a Christian, and I'm a a, a, a conservative uh, in my belief. I'm a, a biblical conservative Christian who I believe in what the scripture says. However, being in that position, I believe that there are some things that those of us who may be on different aisles, different races, if we got to the table together, we could see that we have more in common than we do uncommonly. So I see the future being bright because there is always hope uh, and for the better, hope for the brighter hope for change. And we never give up hope on that. It's like the flag in Mississippi. Nobody saw it, whether you were for the flag or not, that people, the ones that were, never saw, never gave up hope. And the ones who didn't never, it was almost like didn't see it coming. It was suddenly, and then here we have change. So we never give up hope. Pauline Rogers is with the Reach Foundation, Reaching and Educating for Hope Foundation. Pauline, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.